for our second message today, we have a full sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele, just about as long a title, Heaven, Hell, Life, Death, and the Resurrection. What on earth is going on here? Mr. Steele. I think looking at it, I had more space on there. I could have, I could have added a few more words. Good afternoon. When I, uh, when I first moved to this country, um, I was ve- very delicately described by the U.S. government as an alien. Uh, not a particularly flattering term, I suppose, but it may have been true. I was probably a little alien to this land, and this land certainly seemed at times a little alien to me. A few different customs here or there. The odd way that y'all speak. (laughs) Y'all, y'all? That's right, it's all y'all. Yes, us Europeans have to stick together. So, I was an alien in a strange land, but of course, making my home here. And I don't, I don't imagine that I'm that much of an alien anymore. I'm, the U.S. government doesn't consider me so. I'm now a citizen of the United States, so I'm, I had to hand in my tentacles and my <laughs> extra arms and legs and a really long tongue. If you've seen Men in Black, that's exactly what it's like. But if, imagine, if you will, if we were visited by an alien. An alien being from a galaxy far, far away. And they arrived here on this earth and started to look around at our culture and our faiths and all of our different practices. What would that alien think? I mean, I suspect that they would really consider us very confused, very confused. So many religions, so many beliefs, contradictory ideas, and contradictory ideas on the one single thing that we will all experience exactly the same. There might be a little variation leading into it. But there's a single event that will happen to us, no matter of our background, our race, our beliefs, our culture, wealth, or personality, whether we're good or evil. All of that will have no bearing on this one single event. At some point, we will die. And there are so many variations about what happens to us after we die. Where do we go? What do we become? We as an individual organism will reach the end of our operating life, won't we? Regardless of how that arrives, we will cease to function. And so we take all these different perspectives on what's going to happen. You know, there are those that, that view this as nothing more than a biological process that comes to an end. That we're just a momentary accident on the grand cosmic narrative, right? 
that we had no real purpose, no beginning in, in mind or no purpose when we began and that our ending also doesn't mean much. I would hate to have that worldview. Why would we continue to live at all? What would be the purpose of continuing to exist if we truly believed that worldview? And there are some that say they do. There are still others that say, well, we're going to be reborn, reincarnated. We'll move to a new level, a higher plane of existence, right, and be reborn into a, a more beautiful and holy individual or body, such as a cow. <laughs> and I don't mean to be dismissive, but there are some very strange, at least to our Western mindset, ideas about reincarnation and, and where we're going to elevate to. Others believed that God created us on this world. He created the universe. He set it into motion. And he's like, okay, I'm done with that project. And he's off doing something else. And he doesn't really much care about what happens to us and all of our struggles on the earth. And each one of these high-level worldviews, they have all their very specific and unique attributes and variations branching off into this root system that, that gets very confusing. So many different perspectives. But if we wait just a second, we find another worldview coming into focus. Something a little different than everything that has gone before. There are those that believe that we have indeed been created for a special purpose. That all of, our grand, all of the grandeur and power of the universe and the entire world has been specifically designed for us. And just think about that. I just read an article just the other day uh, on the BBC website. A new study on exoplanets. I don't know if you've heard this. But a new study on exoplanets. So these are planets that have been identified outside of our solar system by inference, you know, various effects on their own stars, all, all different kinds of methods. Some of them even being observable by a certain amount of light coming from those planets. And these things are huge. And not a single one of them is in the right location around its star with the right atmosphere and the right composition for life. And this study, right, this is done by scientists. So you'd think that this study is going to be weighted towards their worldview, that Earth-like planets are plenty in the universe. And it turns out, according to this study, that the Earth might be a very rare planet indeed. What do you know? Guess Job was right all along. Right? So, we have this view that this place, this earth, this spaceship that we're all on is designed for us. And therefore, there's a goal. 
at the end of each one of us. And that when we reach this end of our biological existence, there's something else. There's a new existence waiting for us. Not just a new existence, but the existence that this physical life has been a precursor for. A warm-up match, if you will. An appetizer to the main meal. Yet even amongst these believers, as we know, Christians, right? There's variations on a theme. So our alien visitor can still be confused about that end game, the result of this physical life and when it's done. Various different interpretations exist. And yet, all of the answers have been in the Bible all along. Very simply and open to us to understand. Now, of course, we do have to study. And we have to be patient. And we have to be willing to learn. And many people are not. And, and in fact, I think it's probably a human trait, right? Over the millennia. Because we've just accepted what our teachers have given to us. What the religious authorities have said is this or that or so on. And yet each one of us now in this day and age has this Bible that we can read in our own language with resources and tools that we can do our own study. That we can rely on that scripture that's given to us. As a way of an example in all of this, in this kind of exploration of what happens to us after we die, I want to read part of an article uh, that was posted on ChristianityToday.com, and it was posted in 2008. The article itself is an excerpt of a book that I'm currently reading. It is by a professor, N.T. Wright, and he is a former Anglican bishop, believe it or not, an Anglican bishop of Durham, which is the fourth highest rank in the Church of England. He's actually sat in the House of Lords and voted on Acts of Parliament as a bishop. He's currently the research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's College in the, at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He likes to go by Tom Wright, not... Uh, not bound up in these big titles. And he has been, over the last 20 years or so at least, turning the Christian world on its head a little bit. Now, we would not agree with everything that he believes. But what I'm going to read to you, you will find interesting. You will find perhaps surprising for somebody that is so bound in traditional Protestantism. He has powerful and contradictory positions on what our ultimate purpose is, what's the end of our existence and our life. The article is entitled, Heaven is Not Our Home. Heaven is Not Our Home. He says, there is no agreement in the church today about what happens to people when they die. Yet the New Testament is crystal clear on the matter. 
In a classic passage, Paul speaks of the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8.23 There is no room for doubt as to what he means. God's people are promised a new type of bodily existence. The fulfillment and redemption of our present bodily life. The rest of the early Christian writings where they address this subject are completely in tune with this. The traditional picture of people going to either heaven or hell as a one-stage post-mortem journey represents a serious distortion and diminution of the Christian hope. Did you get that? He says the idea that going to heaven or hell when we die is a distortion of the Christian hope. No surprise to us, right? I think it is fantastic that he is teaching the broader Christian world this truth. He says bodily resurrection is not just one bit, uh, one odd bit of that hope. It is the element that gives shape and meaning to the rest of the story of God's ultimate purposes. If we squeeze it to the margins, if we push it to the side, as many have done by implication, or indeed if we leave it out altogether as some have done quite explicitly, we don't just lose an extra feature like buying a car that happens to not have electrically operated mirrors. We lose the central engine which drives it and gives every other component its reason for working. So he is saying that an actual resurrection not a disembodied existence, but a bodily resurrection, to use his term. And it, you know, it sometimes falls a little strange on our ears. I take him to mean a spirit body, as we would term it. He says that is central to Christian doctrine and gives everything else a reason for working. When we talk with biblical precision about the resurrection, we discover an excellent foundation for lively and creative Christian work in the present world, not, as some suppose, for an escapist or quietist piety. Again, what he's saying here is that the Christian worldview, the traditional broad Christian worldview, holds that when we die, we go to heaven or hell, whatever the case may be. He's saying that's not true. That the purpose of this life on earth is to be changed, to be saved, to be resurrected or changed as we, as we know the scripture says. And it's not to be taken to heaven at death. At least not in that conscious awareness state. You know, Paul does talk about, doesn't he, that the spirit returns to God that gave it, and that he holds that. He continues, while both Greco-Roman paganism and Second Temple Judaism held a wide variety of beliefs about life beyond death, the early Christians, beginning with Paul, were remarkably unanimous on the topic. When Paul speaks in Philippians 3 of being citizens of heaven, he doesn't mean that we shall all retire there when we've finished our work here. And I love that imagery. 
okay, we're done being Christians, we're going to go to the retirement home. He's not, no, that, that's not what happens at all. He says in the next line that Jesus will come from heaven in order to transform the present humble body into a glorious body like his own. He's going to bring it with him, right? One of his podcasts, N.T. Wright, talks about how if I invite you over for dinner, and when you arrive, you say, I say to you, I have some beers for you in the fridge. I'm not saying you need to go into the fridge and drink them. Right? We're going to bring the beer out to where we are. That is our new body. That is that recreated, restored, ultimate body. Being brought out of storage and given to where we are. Jesus will do this by the power through which he makes all things subject to himself. And this little statement, he says, contains in a nutshell more or less all of Paul's thought on the subject. The risen Jesus is both the model for the Christian, Christian's future body and the means by which it comes. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul says that when the Messiah, the one who is your life, appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. Paul does not say, one day you will go to be with him. No, you already possess life in him. This new life, which the Christian possesses secretly, invisible to the world, will burst forth into full bodily reality and visibility. The clearest and strongest message is Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, 9 through 11, he says. If the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Messiah, dwells in you, says Paul, then the one who raised the Messiah from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies as well. Through his Spirit who dwells in you. God will give life not to, disembodied, not to a disembodied spirit, not to what many people have thought of as a spiritual body in the sense of a non-physical one, but to your mortal bodies also. And I take from that that he means a defined body, like Jesus, that was able to be held and, and touched, and, and, but at the same time could walk through walls. It's something that is hard for us to conceive in many ways, even with all of our sci-fi that we have now. And, and all of that, it, it's still a difficult concept. If it wasn't, I suppose we wouldn't have all these variations of, of what it really means. He says, other New Testament writers support this view. The first letter of John declares that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is, the resurrection body of Jesus, which at the moment is almost unimaginable to us in its glory and power, will be the model for our own. And of course, within John's gospel, despite the puzzlement of those who want to read the book in a very different way, we have some of the clearest statements of future bodily resurrection. Jesus reaffirms, he says, the widespread Jewish expectation of the resurrection in the last day. 
and announces that the hour for this has already ar arrived. It is quite explicit. The hour is coming, he says. Indeed, it is already here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who will hear will live. When all the graves will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of, the, of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now that's just a very small part of this article. And again, like I said before, I don't agree with everything that, that Tom Wright says. I get very frustrated when he keeps calling Passover Easter. Stop that. Because in other attributes, he understands, perhaps in a broader way than, than what we would generally perceive Christianity as understanding about the Christian Passover. And I really want to write to him and ask him, has he thought about the Holy Days? In countless other books, though, articles, podcasts, other materials, he has expressed, even in more definitive terms, what our resurrection is going to be like, that it will be on the earth, and explicitly that the kingdom of God will be on this earth, that we will not go running off somewhere else, but that the kingdom comes to this earth. And of course, we shouldn't really be surprised, right? It's in the book. And you know, he's an interesting guy. I mean, he talks about when he went through his college experience of how his teachers were not godly. They were humanist. They were, well, here's what we've got to teach you, but, you know, it's not true. But everybody out there is going to need you to know this stuff. And so he talked about how you just basically had to pretend to go along and you either have to adopt it or you just get through seminary and then get out into the real world and do the real ministry. And that's what he did. He was both a pastor and a theologian. So again, it's kind of remarkable, in spite of his background, he was able to just read the word. And he needs to do it in some other areas, if I may be so bold. But it's in there. This Church of England bishop. And you know, one of the things he does, and he gets a lot of criticism for this too, he has this concept that he calls sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone. Sola scriptura. So, if we are ever, and we can all adopt this, right? If we are ever in conflict in our theology, in our doctrine, in what the Church of England would call liturgy, he says, Bible first. Bible alone. Our theology, our doctrines, our liturgy, they can go to the side. We rely on the scripture. So, he's not transforming the Church of England en masse, but I think he's having an effect. And this is something that we believe, isn't it? What he's talked about, that there's a real resurrection that takes place on the earth. We might meet Jesus in the air, yes, but then we come here with him to be wherever he is. 
We're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around heaven. We're going to be created new, resurrected beings for Jesus' work on the earth. So, what does it matter? What does it matter? If you believe we go to heaven, I believe we go on the earth, somebody else believes we go to Mars, does it really matter just as long as we are saved? I think Ken pointed out it matters earlier. It matters. Why does it matter? Isn't it all semantics? Does it really matter in the light of just as long as we all become eternal beings with God? Does it matter? I believe it's vital. It's vital not just for our faith now, but for the entire creation. It's a bold statement, isn't it? But Paul says it. So let's go to what N.T. Wright quoted earlier, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, think about that for a minute. What's going on? What is Paul saying? He's writing to the Romans who are presumably alive, right? There wouldn't be a lot of point writing to them if they weren't. They're alive. How is it that life can be given to their mortal bodies? What does he mean by this condition? Well, the answer is in verse 10. The body, this body, this physical body, compared to the life of Christ in us, is dead. It is, it's dead. We are as a seed dropped on the ground by this, this great tree. We're just dropped. And I don't know, when, when I was a boy, we used to, uh, you guys don't do it here, we used to have conquer fights. You ever heard of conquer fights? Some kind of chestnut. And we would go hunting for these on the ground. We'd open them up and inside is the nut and you put a hole through it, a string, and you tie a knot and you hold it up while the other kid clobbers your conquer with their conquer. And so I just remember going, and we, it's odd, for this analogy, we would go, the best places to go find these was in the graveyards, <laughs> cemeteries. And we would have these, and some of them, moldy, nasty smell. You open it up, and inside is this 
beautiful, shiny, it's a kind of a dark, shiny nut. And you're like, oh, it's perfect. This is at least a 20 conquer. Because if you manage to destroy the other kids conquer and send it to smithereens, you'd tie a knot in that string. Ah, that's one. Bragging rights. There's no cash involved, unfortunately. But, but we would look for these things, and they would just be all over the ground. And then if, if a lot of kids had come through there, that they'd be all swept up, and so you'd have to throw things at the tree to knock them down. But we are. We're like these seeds, and we have fallen from the one that made us. And we're laying on the ground, rotting. We're getting older. We're getting more wrinkly. But what was it? Smellier. That would be me, getting smellier. And yet inside, what's going on? There's some kind of secret germination going on. The world doesn't see it, but inside of us is this new creature, this new life. And if some kid doesn't come over and pull us apart and take out the innards, that new life will spring forth, will burst forth. And it won't look like the nut that was on the ground. It'll be from it. It'll look like the tree that bore it, right? Springing forth into new life, a new body. Just as Jesus' body burst forth. You know, I think the earth shook for a reason. When he was raised to life, never to die ever again, and our guarantee that that will, not, that will be our last time that we will die and raised again just like him. And this, this goes all the way back to Genesis. And I know we know this, but we kind of forget, don't we? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. God said, when the Elohim said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are created in the image of God. When Jesus arrived on this earth, he didn't look strange. He looked like us. We looked like him. When they formed us, we were formed after them, shaped just like them designed to be just like them. And it's easy to allow sin to distort that view, to give us a negative image of what God is building in us. God's plan is to restore us back. Restore us to the original plan. He said, let us make man in our image. And we fell from that image. We fell from that perfection, from his nature. But there's something else. Because even though we fell from his nature, even though we fell from the, the perfect character, 
that he is, we still had dominion over the earth. Remember? He said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Have rule over. And that's important, as we'll see in a minute. Because it's part of God's redemptive plan. So going back to Paul, he, he continues... In verse 12, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So Paul starts to introduce something in this resurrection process. And at least one of them, well, probably both, of my two points here, is a little unusual. This notion of being an heir. We're familiar with that, right? That we're going to be an heir. That we have an inheritance. Heirs, you know, inherit something. But what normally happens when we inherit something? What normally happens? How do we inherit something from someone else? They die. Not so in this situation. We inherit something because we're made alive. Now you could argue, well, we're inheriting it because Christ died. Uh, okay. But that's not really what he says. Because Christ is in us and the life of Christ is in us, we are now inheritors because we are alive. It's something new. And it's important. It turns that traditional inheritance on its head. If Christ, through his resurrection, will also give life to our dead condition, then we must also be made heirs by life and not death. And of course, it's different because God is different. God is life. We are not. We are dead. And that's the only way that we can transfer inheritance. The second point is perhaps the biggest question of all. What are we inheriting? What are we inheriting? In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the whole creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into that glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. Have you thought about where Paul gets this from? It's good to trust Paul. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But it's okay to question, where did he derive this theology? I mean, is he just making this up? Is this something new? Is there something that Paul can point to to back this up? Well, I think there is. We actually read it before. In Genesis chapter 1, and verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over birds of the air, and over cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. As I mentioned before, we fell from the image of God. We became full of sin and destruction and sickness and death. But we retained clearly dominion over the earth, didn't we? We still have dominion over this planet. How do we know this? Because we're ruining it. We're destroying it. We're damaging it. We still have dominion over it. How many countless species have we caused to become extinct? How many parts of the world have we made uninhabitable? I was just reading a, a, about a month ago, there's huge swaths of France on border with Germany and that whole area that, that really cannot be utilized anymore because there's so many thousands of unexploded munitions from World War I. And that's just one, one spot. One spot. And every once in a while, a, a poor farmer will come along and nick one of those things, and mustard gas will be released. And you think of all the places in the world where there are just, how are you going to clean up North and South Korea? Because I'm sure everybody kept the track of where all of those landmines are, right? And there's so many other ways in which we are destroying the planet, damaging the earth, doing terrible destruction to our world. We clearly still have dominion over the earth. We still have control over this planet. And so it groans. Under the weight of mankind's control, it groans. And Paul personifies the creation and says that it eagerly waits for the revealing, the bursting forth of the sons of God. Why? It's crying out. It's crying out, get these humans off of us. Would you release us from the bondage of mankind? It's crying out. The mountains, the trees, the valleys, the birds, the beasts of the field are groaning to God. But rather than taking us away from the earth, snatching us all up to heaven, where well, we can't do any more damage. We read this in Revelation, chapter 20 and verse 4. 
He says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been, uh, who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And the context for this reigning, for this kingdom of God, is on the earth. Revelation 19, 15 through 16. You will see that Jesus is coming to the earth, to the nations. That is the context. That the Messiah comes to the earth. And the saints, the resurrected saints, you and I, are part of that. We are there. Ruling with it. So he's not going to snatch us away so that we can't do any more damage to this planet. He's going to do what any good parent does, right? You get in there and you tidy up your mess. You tidy up the room and the mess that you made in it. And he's going to be with us. He's going to be helping. But we're going to do some heavy lifting. We'll be finally restored back to the beginning. Back to Genesis 1.26. This is part of our inheritance. This world is our inheritance. Maybe not under its current governments or its current administration. But we live in the land of promise right now. This is part of our inheritance. We'll be ruling it under the new order of the kingdom of God. We are coming full circle, really, at this point, aren't we? We're finally coming back to that point where God was trying to start this thing. I'm going to create man in our image, and I'm going to make him rule the earth. And in the kingdom of God, he's going to bring us back. And you could, I suppose, you could look at the last 6,000 years as been one big diversion. He's going to bring us back to the beginning. And you know, this ultimate plan of God is echoed throughout the Bible. Sola Scriptura could just tell us if we got all of religious dogma out of the way and relied on the Word of God. Relied on that. Created by God, we are set aside for His special protection. We're being made in His image. And, you know, Israel is a, an interesting example, isn't it? He is, a, as, a, as a man, he's an example for all of humanity. Specifically created by God and, and rejected God and fell away from God. And he has to restore him again. And this is the same story of mankind. But God is able. He's able to deal with the situation that we have. With, as Ken mentioned earlier, 
Sometimes he's able to deal with our lack of following his way and obedience. Isaiah 59 and verse 9. This is the situation that we find ourselves in, and then we see God's response. It says, Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight, and we are as dead men in desolate places. You know, how many parts of the world are just desolate? Total breakdown in government in, in regions of the Middle East and, and so many other areas. And then even if we don't live in, in one of those awful situations, we look, you know, we're going on to our political season, right? The never-ending presidential campaigns. And there isn't a single candidate that is worth our time, worth our attention. Everybody, you watch this menagerie of news. There's a big TV outside of my office at work, and I unfortunately see it every time I walk by it. And they're just groping. Groping around as though they're in darkness. We all growl like bears, and we moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there isn't any. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing from God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Really? Do we care that the Pope thinks Donald Trump's not a Christian? I mean, how ridiculous. Lost. The whole world can see Donald Trump's hardly practicing Christianity. What does the scripture say? By their fruits you will know them. The first president, if he were to be elected, that owned a strip club. That's fantastic. This is where we are. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. It's like righteousness is going to step over here. I'm just going to watch this train wreck. For truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter, so truth fails. Hillary Clinton said the other day, I've always tried to tell the truth. I don't know about you, but I was raised either you don't try, right? Well, I'm trying to tell you the truth, Dad. That didn't work too well for my behind. But it's true, isn't it? Truth fails. It's just, you know, how persuasive you can be and how much spin there is. And he who departs from evil, you're going to make yourself a prey, a mockery. But then there's a turning point. It says, Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. 
that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with the zeal, with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will, uh, he will fully repay. So they sh show, shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and the glory of his rising uh, from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. And it's easy to look at that scripture and go, yes. Give those wicked people what they deserve. Right? And of course there is a fair amount of that that happens. You look in Revelation, you know, when the instruction is given to, to, to hurt those, or destroy those, that destroy the earth. But there's a danger. There's a danger in there. Because don't we deserve the same? And what is it that separates us from them? It's grace. It's a repentant heart. I think in a larger sense, this passage, it ends on that note. It says, the Redeemer will come to Zion. There are enemies that are not human, aren't there? And they are enemies of God as well as us. The Redeemer is coming to save. And you, know, you think about it, the sight of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords appearing, I think is going to cause a lot of repentance. A lot of repentance. Jesus is coming to avenge himself of his enemies, yes, of Satan and his forces and the forces of darkness. Because remember what Paul says back in Ephesians, chapter 6 and verse 10. He says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly or high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And as I read this next part, notice the similarity between Isaiah 59 and the preparation that we should make and the preparation that the Redeemer makes. He says, Stand therefore, having your waist gird in truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The same thing that the Redeemer puts on when he's getting ready to come to the earth having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, above all taking the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, 
and take the helmet of salvation. Another same piece that the Redeemer puts on when he's coming to judge the earth and to save. We're doing the same thing. We're to put on some of that same armor. There is a significant difference. We are not avenging. There is a role for that, and it is whose? It is God's. That's not our role. But we are in a very similar kind of way putting on that armor and battling for the kingdom of God that will be on this earth. And it makes sense. We're being made like him now, and we will be made even more like him as we are changed when we're resurrected. So going back to Isaiah 59, we just finished the thought. He says, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. This is our promise. This is our inheritance. The whole world, which is groaning for the return of the Messiah, will be redeemed. For when Jesus comes and resurrects his saints and changes us who are alive into the sons of God, he will finally start the full restoration of this earth, of this creation. And this passage here in closing Reminds me of another passage in Isaiah 55 and verse 11. It says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So instead of this groaning, mourning world, we have this. For you shall go out with joy, and you shall be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills, they won't groan and mourn and cry out. Now they will break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is why it matters. This imagery that we're given here of the future is why it matters whether you go to heaven when you die. Why would God send you up there when there is so much work to be done down here? 